Hebrews chapter 1, if you'd like to look there, we're going to read from verse 4 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. So he, Jesus, the Son, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same. And your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? You've seen the Papa John's commercials. Founder of Papa John's always ends with the words, better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. I was thinking that with alteration, you could sum up the message of the entire book of Hebrews with that slogan. Better Savior, better salvation, Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews knows that his readers are in some danger of drifting from the faith. They may even turn from Christ to other would-be saviors, whether things or people. And that would prove disastrous for these friends for whom he cares so much. So he writes to convince them to move closer to Christ. That's the way to avoid drifting. He wants them to cling to Christ. His plan is to convince them that Jesus offers a better salvation than anyone else offers because Jesus is better than anyone or anything else. That's the truth he wants to impress on their hearts and minds. Better Savior, better salvation. Jesus Christ. In verses 1 and 2, our author has already argued that Jesus is better than the prophets. Look at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Jesus is better than the prophets. Our author will go on to say that Jesus is better than Moses, who led people into the promised land. Jesus leads people to a better land. He's better than Aaron, the high priest, who offered sacrifices for the people. Jesus offered a better sacrifice. And throughout the rest of this chapter, he will argue that Jesus is better than angels. Better Savior, better salvation. Jesus Christ. 
Verse four now. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Two of every three New Testament uses of the word translated superior in this sentence, the first word translated superior, occur in Hebrews. Two out of three. Our author cares about what is superior. The second word translated superior is altogether a different word, a word that places stress on the difference between two things. The author uses that word three out of four times it's used in the New Testament. Both words carry the idea of something better. In fact, the first word is almost always translated better in the New Testament. And that's our author's one great concern. As he goes on this letter, and in this letter, he will describe the better life that Christians possess. He will write about the better plans God has for us. He will discuss the better promises we have received, the better hope we have, the better covenant we're under, the better country for which we're bound, and the better word that's been spoken on our behalf. Better, 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 all through the book of Hebrews. But a better ending depends on a better beginning, a better way on a better starting point. That's why here at the beginning of this letter, our author stresses the point, we have a better life because we have a better life giver. We have a better salvation because we have a better savior. To drift from him is dangerous. To turn from him to anything else, utter foolishness. One of the chief, maybe the chief theme of this letter, Christ is better, better than Moses better than the high priest, better than angels. But to say that to these readers, most of whom were probably Jewish, requires support. And so for that support, our author goes to the Old Testament. He displays familiarity, if you read the letter closely, with other Jewish literature, but he never quotes it, never uses it to support any of his claims. Those other texts are helpful to him, but they don't have the authority of the scripture. Our author loves the biblical text. He quotes or cites from the Bible 35 times in his letter. He has long been in the habit of searching the scriptures. When he writes the scripture says, for him that's tantamount to saying God says. In fact, there are places in this letter where we're not sure which he means. It, that is the scripture says, or he, that is God says, because the form of the verb is identical in Greek. Our author believed that God's words are infinitely rich and worthy of study and contemplation. He believed that Jesus, the Son of God about whom he writes, was alive and active in creation and in history and is found throughout the pages of the Old Testament. For our author, the key to understanding the Bible is Jesus. Now there's a takeaway here. If God speaks through the scriptures, then those who want to hear what he has to say will spend time there. It's silly to say, I want to hear God, I want to know him, I want to find out what he's like, and then avoid the scriptures. Our author, as the biblical quotes in this chapter and throughout the rest of the book testify, spent a lot of time in the Bible. We would be wise to do the same if we want to hear from God. I think often the reason we don't spend time in the Bible is because, frankly, we don't want to hear from God. He interrupts what we're doing. Now, Hebrews gives more space to angels than any of the New Testament letters. Our author uses the word angel in its singular or plural forms 
13 times in this letter, and 11 of them come in the first two chapters. So why all this interest in angels, 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 angels? We get the idea that the recipients of this letter had turned, or at least they drifted off to an interest in angels that might border on a kind of substitution for Jesus. Now, if you think that that sounds far-fetched, you're mistaken. It happened here in the 1980s and 90s that angel frenzy, for the most part, has passed, but even Christians' interest in angels was badly out of proportion. And among non-Christian, interest in angels sometimes turned into angel worship. And this in postmodern United States. Like late 20th century Americans, first century Jews were very interested in angels. <clears throat> and their interests sometimes put them in a place of spiritual danger. Outside the Bible, Judaism had developed a complex doctrine of angels. They gave names to the seven principal angels, only two of whom are found in the Bible. They believed that angels delivered messages to men, which is true. The word angel actually means messenger. In fact, most of the time it occurs in the Bible, it doesn't mean angels as supernatural spiritual beings, but it means messenger. Uh, they believed that the angels guided the stars and the planets in their courses, that angels controlled the weather, that angels guarded hell, that angels ruled over the nations. In some doctrinal forms, every person had his own angel, an angel to guard his life. That's just where the idea of guardian angels comes from. Some, by the way, if you try to find proof that everyone has a guardian angel in the Bible, you won't find it. You can find some similar things, but you won't find it. That idea doesn't come from the Bible itself, but from ancient Judaism. In some versions of first century angelology, every blade of grass had its own angel. Angels were everywhere by the trillions. With all that interest in angels, there was a constant danger that angels would become more important to people than the Savior. That's precisely what happened around the Mediterranean in the first century. There were religious movements in which uh, it was thought that angels formed an infinitely long chain between God and men. And in some of those movements, Jesus was thought to be one member of that infinitely long chain and not even the highest one. Our author will have none of that. Jesus is better, better than Moses, better than Aaron, and better than angels. And he intends to prove it. Better Savior, better salvation. And his proof comes in the form of seven Old Testament quotations. That in itself is interesting. The Jews had a thing about numbers. Uh, and the number seven had special significance. It was associated with God himself. Remember that the author used seven descriptive phrases for Jesus in verses 2 two and 3. And now, through the rest of this chapter, he will uh, draw on seven biblical texts to prove Jesus' superiority over angels. I don't know what that means. I just noticed it and thought it was very interesting. The first of those seven texts is in verse 5, and it comes from Psalm 2. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Or again, and this is from First Chronicles 17, I will be his father and he will be my son. Jesus is better than angels because he's the unique son of God. A literal translation of this verse would run, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Angels are messengers. That's the meaning of their name. But Jesus, to use St. John's language, is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is obviously better than angels for our author because they worship him. Verse six, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That's the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 32, 43. And our author's not done. Jesus is better than angels because angels are servants, but the son is no less than God. Verse seven, in speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. By the way, in Greek, that could read just the opposite way. He makes winds his angels and flames of fire his servants. And we're not sure which was the original intention. <clears throat> That's from Psalm 104, verse 4. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, about the sun, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. That's Psalm 45. The word translated in, in as servant in verse 7, not the usual word for servant in the Greek New Testament, it has to do with priestly service and the worship of God. It's the word later gus. We get our word liturgy from that word. The angels serve in the worship of God. We have a picture of this in the last book of the Bible in the Revelation. There, uh, the seer writes, I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. He saw and he heard angels conducting the liturgy of heaven, singing and chanting their never-ending worship of God. Text goes on. The angels encircled the throne and in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To whom were they giving worship? To the lamb. That is to Jesus, the son of God. Revelation 5 is a picture of what our author is trying to prove. The angels are liturgists engaged in worshiping God. But the Son is the object of their worship. Verse 10. He, now that, that is God, also says, speaking to the Son, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You'll roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they'll be changed, but you remain the same. And your years will never end. That's from Psalm 102. The Son is the Lord of men and angels, the unchanging and eternal one. Now, one last scripture quotation. The seventh one from that very important Psalm 110, which we find throughout this letter, to prove that Jesus is better than angels. This is verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Once again, while angels stand in attendance, bow in worship, or fall prostrate on their faces, the Son sits at God's right hand, ruling from the throne of heaven. Now let me just sum up what we've looked at in these verses so far. 
Jesus is better than angels. He's the son, they're only messengers. He receives worship, they give it. He rules, they serve. He is God enthroned and anointed, the creator, the eternal and unchanging one. He rules as the sovereign of the universe while they are ministers to the heirs of salvation. Our author raises one last question, verse 14, to drive home his point. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The angels are sent to serve people, to serve us. Angels serve those who inherit salvation, but Jesus is the author of salvation. They're servants, he's savior. And our author doesn't want us to get mixed up on that point. Because better savior, better salvation. The author of Hebrews doesn't want his people to misplace their faith. They're going to need it. Sometimes you'll see the Latin phrase, sola fide, faith alone, used by churches or Christian schools uh, or authors. We evangelicals talk a great deal about faith because the Bible does. But it's not enough to have faith. Faith must be in the right object. I once heard a story, probably... 15 years ago or more, on national public radio about a woman who worshipped Frank Sinatra. And I mean literally worshipped Frank Sinatra. She was about 80 years old at the time of the interview. She had long before made a shrine in her home to Sinatra, and she lit candles to him and prayed to him every day. Sinatra was her God. She had faith, but it was in the wrong object. That's just what the author of Hebrews wants to avoid. He doesn't want us to place our faith in the wrong object, whether it be an angel or our own morality or in religious rules or ceremonies. It's not just sola fide, faith alone. It's in solo Christo, in Christ alone. Back in 1988, the year I moved here, a guy named Ivan Lester McGuire, who was... uh, a veteran photographer and skydiver jumped from a plane filming other skydivers from above as their chutes opened. He was wearing a helmet camera and he was able to capture some great footage. These other skydiver chutes opened like, you know, like flowers in a, in a time-lapse photography. But then the picture went berserk and the camera started twisting all over the place. According to police, this man who had made over 800 jumps in his life forgot to put on his parachute before he jumped out of the plane. He had confidence in his ability, great confidence, but it was misplaced. If your faith is in the wrong object, sooner or later, you're going to experience a hard landing. Now, I've been repeating the line, better Savior, better salvation, Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been thinking, what other salvation is there? What Savior substitutes? There are many People seek salvation from wrinkles in old age, from boredom and bad marriages, from mediocrity and loneliness and insecurity and illness. They drift towards other saviors. Medicine, entertainment, education, alcohol, social media, lovers, clothing, possessions, experiences. More frequently than to any other, they turn to the head of the pantheon, the world's most popular god, to mammon, and all his manifestations, money, cash, wherewithal, financial security. See, 
And this is really important. The Savior you turn to will depend on the salvation you think you need. If you need to be safe from boredom, if that's the biggest enemy in your life, you'll turn to entertainment or to social media and it'll save you for a time. If you need to be safe from insecurity, you'll turn to education or hard work or maybe a lover. But the Bible teaches we need to be saved from sin. And none of those other saviors are strong enough to provide that salvation. Old age, boredom, bad marriages, mediocrity, loneliness, insecurity are immediate in-your-face threats. But sin is the source from which they issue. A better salvation is salvation from sin. And that requires a better savior, Jesus. So let me ask you, for what kind of salvation have you been seeking? One final thing about this text. I'd never noticed this before, but it struck me as being rich, and it answers some questions that I don't have time to ask about the text. But you may want to explore. Our author opens this section with a quote from Psalm 2, as I mentioned earlier, which most scholars believe was a coronation song for one of Israel's kings. He then follows that enthronement ceremony through the rest of this chapter. The, the enthronement ceremony when a king was given authority over his people came in three parts. There was a declaration that the king was God's son. We see that in verse five. Then there was the introduction of the king to his people, describing his greatness, his worth, Our author does that in verses 6 through 12, where Jesus is presented as righteous and worthy of worship, as the creator of the world, as the eternal, changeless one. So in the first part of the ceremony, God says, the king is my son. In the second part, the king is introduced to his people, the worthy one. In the third part of the ceremony, we have the enthronement proper, in which the king sat down upon his throne and took up his rule. Our writer's thinking of that in verse 13 when he quotes Psalm 110, that important psalm where it's written, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Christians have, and we evangelicals have not largely taken part in this, but Christians have historically celebrated Christ's enthronement in what has been known as the Feast of Ascension when Christ took his rule, I invite you to celebrate it here and now. Celebrate it by confessing Jesus as your Lord and offering your obedience to him. We can't make him king, he already is. But we can recognize him as our Lord and master and king. So if you own him as your king, or you're ready to do so today, I want to invite you to join me in this prayer. You'll see it up on the screen. Let's pray it together. Almighty God, whose blessed Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. In your mercy, give us faith to see that Jesus reigns over all things in heaven and abides with his people on earth 
even to the end of the ages. Grant us grace to obey him as our Lord and King. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.